Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History on the day that England are playing Wales. And I think it's time for a sing-song. That was the opening verse of Amma Ahid by David Ivan. It's become very much the uh, the kind of the great theme for Welsh football. Uh, I'm sure it'll be sung on the terraces this afternoon. Um, and Dominic, I will give you, uh, because I, you know, I'm assuming that you your mastery of Welsh isn't up to understanding what was being sung there, but maybe I'm wrong. Am I wrong? The podcast listeners know me, Tom, as the master of tongues. The master of tongues. Well, for those for those who, who whose Welsh may not enable them to translate it. I, let me just quickly distance myself from your Welsh pronunciation, just for the okay. From, yeah, okay. I just I just want to put that absolutely on the record. Uh, that's Please fine. Please continue. That's fine. You are from Shropshire. You are entitled to say that. Um, so the the meaning of the words. You don't remember Maxon. Nobody knows him. 1,600 years, a time too long to remember when Magnus Maximus left Wales in the year 383, leaving us a whole nation. And today, look at us. So I think that is a magnificent sentiment. Firstly, because as far as I know, it's the only football anthem that mentions a Roman emperor. Magnus Maximus, yeah. But secondly, Dominic, when he says that nobody knows him, that's not true because listeners, regular listeners to the rest of history will remember Magnus Maximus because we did an episode on the the, uh, the ghostly afterlife of the Roman Empire. We did, and we, yes. And, and we talked about how the Welsh princes over the, the early Middle Ages and into the, the, the final extinction of Welsh independence under Edward I, that they preserved this memory that they were kind of descended from, they, they had this Roman lineage, that they were princes by virtue of having been appointed to their rank by Magnus Maximus, who is this Roman general who stripped the island of its legions and went to Gaul and, and perished. Um, and so that sense of the Welsh as a, a Roman people in opposition yeah. to the English who were barbarians was very strong. You made an incredible claim at the end of that episode, didn't you? That the last Roman emperor was Prince Charles, as he was. <laughs> as he then was, because the, the argument was that Edward I, when he appoints his son, the future Edward II, as Prince of Wales, is kind of appropriating that tradition. And it's been mm-hmm. handed down through the heirs of the, the, the British monarch right the way to the present day. And of course, there is a slight tension in the role played by the current Prince of Wales, who is uh, Prince William, who's always been very, very out and proud as an England football fan. Yeah, there's been lots of controversy about this in recent days, Tom, uh, because quite a few Welsh fans, the actor Michael Sheen, prominent among them, have been lambasting him and saying, how can you be Prince of Wales and be supporting England? And his sort of you know, classic House of Windsor fudge is to say, <laughs> I'm supporting both. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they both make it to the final and then I'll decide. And yeah. I hope they both win. But Tom, uh, we have managed to do our classic thing, haven't we? We're talking for almost five minutes without even mentioning the guest who's been sitting waiting. We have a brilliant guest. Very, very patiently. So we do have a brilliant guest. The subject today, as you've explained, is um, is Wales. What is Wales? What is Welshness? And how does it define itself against England? The perfect subject for today's match. And we have the perfect guest. He is Martin Jones, Professor of History at the University of Swansea and the author of the book, Wales, England's Colony. Yes, and the question mark is very The question mark is very important. (laughs) So Martin, welcome to The Rest is History. Wales, England's Colony or not? It depends when we're talking about. Um, I wouldn't use the term to describe Wales today um, as a colony, but certainly if you go back to the medieval period, I don't think we can deny that Wales was militarily conquered 
um, and subject to colonial laws that put the Welsh in their place. Um, you know, they were second class citizens in their own nation. So I think, you know, if you want to go far, that far back, I think it's fine to, to, to call Wales maybe England's first colony. Right. And so when we look at the relationship between England and Wales, one of the themes that runs throughout your book is that for most of the history of that relationship, Wales has defined itself against England, whereas England has not defined itself against Wales. Exactly. I mean, Wales is a very small nation. You know, today it's sort of 3.1 million people. And, And throughout its history, its politics, its culture, its economy has existed in the shadow of England. And, you know, you could argue that one of the thing that brought one of the things that brought the different peoples of Wales together, the different medieval kingdoms, was a sense of difference to England. You could argue that it was only once those laws that were passed that denied the Welsh civil rights in their own country that they began to feel something in common with each other. The people of Powys and Gwynedd sort of developed a common identity. Um, and, you know, this isn't unusual. You know, this happens across history. People yeah. define themselves against a large neighbour. The unfortunate thing is that sometimes that can lead to us having a slight chip on our shoulder, maybe not um, being as confident um, as we should be as a nation. Um, and, you know, today in Welsh politics, a lot of the argument is about moving beyond that and kind of enjoying Welshness for its own sake rather than just because it's different to England. So the very name Wales that's a name imposed on Wales from outside, right? It means the strangers or the others or the foreigners. the foreigners. And that's a name imposed by the English. Am I right? I mean, imposed, it, it imposed suggests that, you know, somebody is coming along and saying, you must take this name. And that isn't happening. The origins of the name, you know, are very difficult. I mean, when we're going that far back, it's difficult to know exactly what, what words meant. Um, and it seems to have different meanings in different contexts. Um, but at its heart is a sense of difference, of otherness. Um, and that name is given to the people of what we now call Wales by the Anglo-Saxons, although I suppose that's a controversial term in, in various Not here, ways. not on this podcast. Not, here, not on this podcast. <laughs> so so it, it does take us back to the beginnings of England, the idea of the English. And the traditional story is that the Welsh initially defined themselves as Britons. They are the indigenous inhabitants of Britain. Absolutely. And that sense that the Welsh are British is really important in early Welsh history. There is a strong sense of loss in Welsh history that once they were the owners of this island and then these Germanic peoples came and took it from them. And within Welsh history, within Welsh legends, there is a very strong idea that one day someone will come back and liberate us um, from English rule and give us back the island. Um, that, that, that idea of sort of the son of prophecy, Amab Dorogan, um, is applied to Owen Glyndwr in his medieval uprisings against English rule, but it's also applied to Henry the Seventh, um, who Henry Tudor, who had some Welsh ancestry, and when he comes to the English throne, when he takes it um, after the Battle of Bosworth, there is a sense in Wales that this is Wales now taking back control of their island. And when Henry the Seventh um, becomes king, he adds to his royal arms the red dragon, and. That is the kind of the archetype of, if you, if you want to express the the story of the conflict between Saxons and Britons, uh, English and Welsh in mythic form, the classic account is that Merlin is told of a vision of a red and a white dragon fighting one another, and that in the end, the red dragon chases the white dragon off. And Merlin says that the, the red dragon is Wales. Or the Britons, and that the, the the white dragon is the Saxons, and presumably the implication of that in the long run is that the Welsh will get what's now England back. Yeah, these stories are really important in Welsh culture right up to the present day in many ways because they tell the Welsh that they're a nation in the face of English conquest, in the face of English oppression, if you want to put it that way. History gave the Welsh a better story, a story that was confident, a story that um, that was optimistic. Um, a story that made them feel that they were a people. Um, so history has been really important in kind of sustaining a sense of Welsh n- nationhood over the years. And that idea of um, perseverance is really important. I mean, the song you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Amal Heed, you know, it translates as still here. And the yeah. whole message of that song is not really about Maxen and Roman emperors. Oh. It's, about, <laughs> it's about how Welsh identity has survived through the years. As the song says, despite everyone and despite everything, we're still here. And history is so central to Welsh identity. And, you know, it's really controversial about whether we teach enough of our history in our schools 
whether teaching Welsh history is political, whether it's a route to independence. But history, you know, history is politicised in Wales and in ways that maybe it's not so much in England. But that identity, that Welsh identity has definitely kind of evolved, hasn't it? Because again, going right back to the beginning, so before the arrival of the Normans, it's the emergence of a unitary kingdom in what becomes England that basically pens the Welsh in. Because the land of England is so much richer than the kind of the more mountainous land of, of Wales. And it means that there's an inevitable discrepancy of power, which presumably has then set the, the kind of the, the, the balance of the relationship for the thousand years that have followed. Yeah, geography is really important, I think, to medieval history. The mountains are one reason why maybe there wasn't the big push by the Normans um, into Wales uh, after they take England. There are Norman incursions, they take lowland areas, but the mountains were difficult uh, to access, but also there's less reward for actually taking them. There's not a lot actually there. So the mountains sort of slow the English incursion into Wales, um, but it also turns Wales into something of a fortress, um, if you like. And that helps Welsh identity survive. And that survives down in the subsequent centuries as well, until kind of the romantics of sort of the 18th century start thinking of Wales as a beautiful place. It's a, it's a rough, dangerous, rugged place. And there's simply little reason for English visitors to go there. And that protects Welsh identity in the Welsh language. So at this point, we're talking about Welsh identity, the Welsh language, Wales. How much of the, are those things anachronistic you know, concepts that we in the 21st century or people in the 20th century were projecting backwards. So in other words, would people in the 11th century or whatever, or the 12th century, would they have thought of themselves as as Welsh, as being one people from north to south, speaking one language with one culture? I mean, they definitely wouldn't have thought of themselves as Celts, would they? Because that, again, is a, is a more modern invention, I guess. Yeah, uh, Celts, I, I, I really don't like the term Celtic, although it's used quite a lot in Wales. Um, it, it, it's misleading. If you go back to the Middle Ages, it's really obviously difficult to know what ordinary people, what peasants thought, um, because simply nobody asked them and nobody wrote it down. But the Lords of Wales do seem to have had a sense of Welshness. You know, they do talk about Welsh language, um, about the Welsh culture, the princes, um, of the various kingdoms of Wales talk about Welshness. They make alliances against the English or against the Normans. And it does seem that amongst the ruling class, there is a sense um, of Welshness. It, co- it coexists alongside a sense of being from Powys or Gwynedd or De Heibarth or any of the other Welsh kingdoms. Um, but it does seem to, to be that a common language and a common law as well do give the Welsh a sense of identity um, and a sense of difference to the English on the other side of the border. So you, in your, your wonderful book, Wales, England's Colony, you quote the first Norman Bishop of St. David's as saying of the Welsh that they are entirely different in nation, language, laws and habits, judgments and customs. Presume that is with reference to the English or to the Normans or to the totality of kind of yes. Latin Europe? I mean, who's he comparing them to? I mean, it's sort of the English and the Normans get mixed up in this period, don't they? And, yeah. um, you know, it's sometimes, sometimes hard to distinguish um, between who's exactly been spoken to about. But it, there is that sense of, you know, of, of a people with habits. And it's important to think that, you know, nationhood in this period isn't just seen as kind of a political unit. It's right. about what we today would call race. Because um, on, the, uh, on the topic of political union, Really, there's only an eight-year period, isn't there, where there is a kind of Welsh nation rather than a collection of different principalities that are that are all Welsh. Yeah, Wales is divided up into different kingdoms. Um, you know, they're constantly at war with each other. They're constantly vying for control. Which one's most powerful ebbs and flows over the course of the centuries. But yeah, there is only a kind of um, an, an eight-year period where you could say all of the kingdoms of Wales are under one und, under one ruler. But that doesn't mean that the Welsh, there isn't this sense of the Welsh as a nation, as a people, um, you know, that there isn't some sense of a common ancestry. And that's where we go back to this idea that once this was our whole island and, and yeah. we are the true Britons and the Anglo-Saxons came and took it from us and now the Normans have come and taken it from yeah. us. But one day we will return. So that king is Grafidap Llewellyn, who is king just before the Norman conquest. Um, and just as the Norman conquest is a traumatic experience for the English, so also, of course, is it clearly a very traumatic experience for the Welsh. And what is the impact of the, of the coming of the Normans to Britain on the Welsh, on Welsh identity and on the coherence of a kind of political sense of Welshness? 
Well, the early Norman lords um, are almost given a free reign in, in, in Wales. You know, there is an opportunity for these barons to kind of set up almost like private enterprises in Wales. Um, you know, the English crown almost says, do what you want over there. And, you know, gradually um, individual barons, individual Norman lords take land within Wales. So and these that, are the marches. So it comes yeah, to be called the marches. Yeah. And that creates what, what we call the marches, this kind of border area, which is essentially under Norman, under Norman rule. So the conquest of Wales begins very quickly after the conquest um, of England. And that changes the whole politics of Wales because suddenly there's this big foe you know, on mm. your doorstep, which you're, which is militarily superior, which has better resources, um, which is very difficult to beat. And that creates some sense of unity, I think, between, um, you know, the existing Welsh kingdoms. But they also become an ally, which the Welsh kingdoms can use in their battles and rivalries between each other. So the whole politics of, the, of not just Wales, but of the whole island um, is changed by the Norman conquest. I love all this because I'm from the marches. Martin, as a, as a Shropshire boy. So I grew up in this sort of, Wales was just over the horizon, you know, on the other side of the long mend and the landscape studded with castles. And I actually wanted to ask a question about castles because I guess the castles that were built in this period and afterwards are the most celebrated man-made landmarks that stand in Wales. But of course, you know, people walk around them today and, you know, people like the Sandbrook family go and buy swords and shields of dragons on and whatnot and really love it. But they are symbols of, I mean, they really are symbols of oppression, aren't they? Of surveillance, of control, of foreign domination, or am I being too harsh? That's what they're literally there for. You know, the, the very the very first ones are quite small and they're to kind of implant uh, Norman, Norman power over local areas. But the last ones, the ones built by Edward I, you know, they, they are amongst the grandest medieval structures probably anywhere in the world. And I think it's it's reasonable to say they are far larger than there was actually needed um, from a military military point of view. It's very difficult to escape the conclusion that that they are symbolic. They are telling the Welsh people you are a conquered people, but maybe not just telling the Welsh people that, but also maybe reminding other English lords: look at the power of the crown, the English crown, that we can build these structures. Um, so the symbolism of them works two ways, and it's left a very complicated relationship. Um, with those castles, you know, through the rest of history, because at one level they remind the Welsh that they're a conquered people, that they remind them of this very difficult history. But the size of them and the scale of them is also something comforting in some ways, because it's also a reminder we were difficult to beat. <laughs> and they're also big money spinners, right? I mean, they bring in a lot of tourists. Yeah, they're great for our tourism. Um, and, you know, but one of the shames is often that actually when you walk around them, you don't really get a sense of the politics behind them. You know, it's very depoliticized, the, the narratives. Yeah. And of course, yeah. this the relationship between Wales and England is still happening today. And there isn't really any effort made to make that connection with today. So the most famous castles of all are those that are built by Edward I, who completes the conquest of Wales. Um, and his, his ring of iron as his as ring of iron. Yes, his ring of iron. And you make the point in the book that one of the things that prompts the conquest of Wales is the fact that the, the the kings of England have lost their lands in Normandy, and so they now are looking for alternative theatres to kind of throw their weight in. And so Wales is you know is in the way of the juggernaut. But you also give the extraordinary statistic. That in 1287, under Edward I, a quarter of the entire Welsh male population was serving in Edward's army. So it's not presumably it's not just about oppression. It's also about giving the Welsh, or at least elements within Wales, a stake within the new regime. When any nation, when any place is conquered, there are always local people who work with the political realities that, that they are faced with. Those as probably Welsh peasants serving serving in the Norman army. Did they have any choice about the matter? It's a well-paid job, probably, you know, compared to trying to live off the land. Um, if you've suddenly become a conquered people, joining the conqueror is a way of maybe getting some status. It's a way of survival. Um, and I think there is a danger maybe of us looking back and thinking of these things in black and white. You know, this yeah. is Norman or English versus Welsh, whereas the realities of life for people were quite different. I mean, just survival in the medieval period, you know, against the elements, growing enough food, looking after your family. None of these things were easy. And just on these people, 
they spoke Welsh, right? They didn't speak English. Are there people speaking English at this point? In the early Norman incursions, there are efforts to implant essentially new populations, settler populations. That happens in Gower near Swansea, um, and that happens in South Pembrokeshire in, in Southwest Wales. And those places today are still very Anglicised. If you look at the, if you look at a map of those areas, the place names are English. You know, it's almost like literally the Welsh have been wiped off the map. Now, what happened to the indigenous population, for, for want of a better term, is very difficult to know. Were they forced off their land? Um, was it relatively empty? Yeah. You know, is there some kind of process of maybe even genocide going on? It's well, it's exactly know. the same questions as, as haunt the question of what happens in lowland Britain in the post-Roman period. I mean, it's really fascinating. But for Welsh speakers, what are the legal frameworks that are governing them following the, the completion of the English conquest? It's not about language, um, first of all. I mean, you know, being Welsh is never defined by language. In essence, language was a sign of being Welsh, um, but it is seen as as, as, an, as an ethnic um, okay. identity. So it's a, kind of like. overtly ra racial then. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, you know, there are attempts by some Welsh people to define themselves as English. Um, you know, they go to local courts and say, oh, no, look at my, look, look at my heritage, you know, despite, despite my name. I'm actually English because, because that, they're suffering legal restrictions because that from being gave Welsh. you legal rights. So there are there are laws passed that denied the Welsh um, the ability to cast to carry arms, to live in towns, to trade in certain places. These aren't always enforced. Um, you know, in some cases they're they're just on the stature book. And historians have gone through the lists um, of tenants and people living in Welsh towns and actually shown a, a fair proportion of them in some places do have Welsh names, but these laws are there on the books. And that made them people literally second-class citizens. And even if these laws aren't always enforced, they're always there in the background. So if you fall out with your neighbour, you know, and you're making better beer than him, and, you know, your, your neighbour might say, but hang on, you're Welsh, you shouldn't even be in this town. You know, yeah. and there does seem to be that in the background. I don't think it's too far to say that people were literally second-class citizens in their own nation. And they don't. There's no representation in the English Parliament. There's no representation um, in the English Parliament. It can be difficult to work your way up um, the ladder. Um, but of course, the governance of any nation requires people, officials who speak the local language. Um, you know, so there are there are opportunities, career opportunities for ambitious uh, people within the Welsh gentry. And so the um, there's one last kind of great national uprising, which is under Owen Glendower. Um, Glendour. <laughs> well, I, sorry, I'm uh, I'm Henry the Fourth, Part Oneing, because um, he's a he's a figure in uh, in Shakespeare's version of Henry the Fourth's reign. That's a terrible portrait of him, isn't it? Because he's like a sort of necromancer, babbling in he Welsh. He speaks and... in very florid poetry, yeah, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, Harry uh, Hotspur. I don't imagine it. that's a production. That's a yeah, a Shakespeare production that's welcomed on the streets of Caerphilly or whatever. <laughs> anyway, sorry, go on, Tom. Ask your question. But what Shakespeare's treatment also does is offer. Uh, Prince Hal, the future Henry V, he's Henry of Monmouth, um, and he is cast as someone who can bridge English and Welsh identity. Is that something that is reflective of the Tudor period, by which point we've got a dynasty that claims descent from Wales, or is that approximating to something that does emerge in the wake of Anne Glenda's rebellion? I mean, there's always the practical politics. People want to get on in life, and Owen Glendour is a good example of that. You know, He'd learnt, you know, he'd, he'd plied his trade in the law in London. He'd served in the English army. His family, um, you know, had English connections. Like a lot of the Welsh gentry after conquest, he started to make a career of himself with um, using the structures of power with England. But something goes wrong. He falls out with another landowner um, and somehow that turns into a national uprising. There seems to be this undercurrent of resentment about the Welsh people, the way Welsh people were treated. And Glyndwr's rebellion plays upon that and it draws people out. And this kind of suppressed sense of anger um, that people seem to have had about the way Wales was treated bursts into flame. And it is an incredibly violent, aggressive uprising. The towns of Wales are burnt because they're symbols of English colonialism um, because of these laws about who can live in them. It's full-scale kind of civil war um, in many ways. You know, there are there, there are open battles as, as well against the English army. This is not a small event, um, and in many ways, it ravages the Welsh economy for the next couple of centuries, and it leaves 
a degree of bitterness and a degree of anger as well um, about the way it fizzled out, but also about how ethnic tensions between the Welsh and the English, what they can turn into. And I think it does create a sense we can't ever go back to that. You know, we need to rebuild a future which is cooperation. Among the Welsh themselves or or in with the English crown? Because I just I'm just asking well, about the Henry V, that you know, he goes on to win the Battle of Agincourt with the longbow, which is a Welsh weapon. And that sense of is there any sense in the 15th century of English and Welsh identities starting to merge, or is that just a later back projection that Shakespeare's engaging in? No, there's a degree of reconciliation that, you know, the Welsh gentry are kind of like, we must never go back to this, to what happened in Glyndwr's period. But the English crown is also, we don't want another uprising. And, you know, it doesn't, ha- it doesn't act too harshly after the uprising is crushed. You know, there is some reconciliation. There's even some compensation paid um, to, some, to some communities. But the fact that there are Welsh archers serving in the English army, again, that, that's part of a much longer history. And that's much more about individuals wanting yeah. to find work in some places. You know, so the hiring of foreign mercenaries, the hiring of foreign people by the English army is, is nothing new. Um, that didn't need reconciliation uh, yeah. between the Welsh and English, but that is happening slowly. But when the Tudors come in, uh, you quote a Welsh writer, Owen of Henlis, am I pronounced that Henlis. right? Henlis. Um, who calls Henry the Moses who delivered us from bondage. And he famously names his son Arthur, great British hero. Yeah. Uh, and as I mentioned, he adds the, the, the red dragon to his coat of arms. So is there a feeling in Wales that with the Tudors, things genuinely change? Yeah, absolutely. Henry Tudor exploits his Welsh ancestry in many ways. He uses it as a way of of, um, gaining support and and manpower within Wales as he's marching towards Bosworth for his his battle to seize the English crown. But once he actually has the English crown, he he does seem to hold up to some of his promises. You know, he brings Welsh people to court. He does these symbolic things like, you know, know, putting the dragon on um, on his heraldry and things like that. And there is a sense in in Wales, um, or at least amongst the Welsh people who wrote about these things, the poets and uh, and the lords, that Wales has retaken its position at the heart of Britain. That you know our previous oppression, our previous shame, our kind of sense of being conquered that that's all in the past now. Now there is a Welshman on the throne of England, and Wales is back in control of this island, just as it should be. And then there are acts of union just a generation or so later. So under his son. Henry VIII. So this is driven by Thomas Cromwell, is it? This is his project of kind of Thomas Cromwell's kind of, uh, Hilary Mantel would call it his kind of social democratic modernization <laughs> of, um, of, uh, of England and Wales. So he's trying to smooth out the eccentricities of their relationship to, in, to create some new counties, to just get everything in order. I mean, is yeah. that basically what it's all about? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two things driving it. They're, there is, I think, a desire for it from some people within Wales. So even though the Tudors are on the throne now, and even though they're making symbolic gestures towards Wales, I think many of the Welsh gentry felt they still weren't fully equal. And some of these laws are still there in, um, in the background. So there was a sense that amongst the Welsh gentry that they wanted legal equality um, with the English. And the Acts of Union was a way to achieve that. But Wales was very complicated administratively. There were the marches still, which were under the control of individual English barons. Um, And then there is what was called the Principality of Wales, which was essentially the bit that used to be independent and then got taken by the English crown um, by by Edward I. So there's almost like two Waleses. And in the Principality, Welsh law is still used. In the marches, it's a bit of English law and a bit of Welsh law, really, often according to what would suit the local baron. Um, and it was administratively complicated. And there was a sense of danger there as well, that you know it was a place of crime. But of course, also, you know, by this period, the whole question of religion is starting to become important. The tensions between Catholicism and Protestantism. And as a Protestant um, state starts to emerge in England, Wales is seen as like a threat. Um, you know, we, we can't have these irregularities. And what we can't have as well is the danger of a Catholic invasion coming to England via Wales um, from Ireland. And of course, that's how Henry took the throne of England in the first place. He invaded England via Wales. Um, 
So there is an attempt to kind of keep the Welsh on side, to, to sort of, you know, to, to give more rights to their gentry, to iron out this complicated administrative situ- situation. And Cromwell, you know, was a great fan of doing things you know, <laughs> yeah. bureaucracy yes. in, in many ways. Making omelettes by cracking eggs. Yeah. <laughs> and now the Acts of Union is seen as kind of this moment of colonialism where Wales is essentially abolished as a separate political unit. Um, whereas the reality of the 16th century was it was way more complicated than that. It wasn't some attempt to say Wales no longer exists. There's no attempt to ban the Welsh language or anything like that. But well, quite the contrary, isn't it? Because uh, the Bible is translated into Welsh. So that's a hugely significant development. Um, And also Wales now gets representation in Parliament. It it does get representation in Parliament. And that's symbolically important more than practically important, perhaps, because, of course, they're a minority of the MPs at, at Westminster. And just as today, um, you know, Welsh voices in Westminster are easily drowned out by English voices. You know, the, the whole question of the United Kingdom, whether we're talking about this period or today, is the size of England compared to the other constituent nations. You know, English voices will always dominate the conversation. Um, so Wales does get some representation um, through the Acts of Union. Um, but as you said, the translation of the Bible, you know, which which happens a little after the Acts of Union, that's the really important moment, I think, in this period. And that's done, you know, with, this, with the approval of the English state as a way of ensuring that Wales joins this Protestant revolution and isn't some kind of Catholic um, yeah. out, out, outlier on, on England's doorstep. But what it does is give the Welsh language dignity and respect. If you can hear the word of God, in Welsh, if you can pray to God in Welsh, if you can be married um, in in Welsh, you know these are, these are major things in people's lives. And I think today we forget the importance of religion in past societies. You know, Not here. <laughs> the, the word of God was everything, and the fact yeah. that it's available in Welsh gives the Welsh language status and dignity in a world where English was the language of law, it was the language of power, it was the language of politics. English was the language you needed to get on. And that meant it was very easy to portray Welsh as a backward and civilised language. And that did happen a lot. But a language can't be uncivilised if the word of God is written in that language. And so the vast, vast majority of people in Wales are speaking Welsh throughout the 16th century, throughout the 17th century. And then with the 18th century, with the development of industrialization, then things do start to change. And perhaps we could take a break at this point. And when we can come back, we could look at the coming of the Industrial Revolution to Wales and the impact that that has. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Caddy Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Look at what these bastards have done to Wales. 
They've taken our coal, our water, our steel. They buy our houses and live in them for a fortnight every year. And what have they given us? Absolutely nothing. We've been exploited, raped, controlled, and punished by the English. And that is who we are playing this afternoon. So that's the late Phil Bennett, the great Welsh rugby fly half in March 1977, before a Five Nations match, which Wales won 49. And yet, as I imagine you will know, Martin, the irony of that is that just a few weeks later, Phil Bennett and a lot of his teammates joined up with the English to go on the British Lions tour of New Zealand. So that, that moment actually speaks to exactly what you're writing about, which is the complicated relationship between Wales and England. So that quotation from Phil Bennett, which I could see you smirking while I started to read it, because it's very famous in Wales, isn't it? It is. He mentions coal, he mentions water, and he mentions steel. So we've cantered through the medieval period. Um, we've skipped over a little bit of the early modern. And as we approach the, the, the 18th and 19th centuries, obviously, coal and steel transform Wales, don't they? I mean, just explain, I guess, to the listeners, because previously Wales had been very, very rural. And then with the Industrial Revolution, it is completely changed. Yeah, if you go back to the middle of the 18th century, Wales is a rural backwater in many ways. Um, it, it's isolated, it's marginalised. Probably at least 90% of the population only speak Welsh. Some of the gentry are, are kind of moving to England and have connections. But by and large, Wales is on the periphery of the United Kingdom. Um, and economically just not that important. But the Industrial Revolution changes everything because Wales has the right minerals. It has coal in abundance, and not just coal, it has very good quality coal, but it also has the minerals you need to, to make iron um, and later on, later on steel. And that changes Wales because suddenly it matters within the United Kingdom. The British government take, becomes more interested in Wales. It becomes interested in why do they not speak English there? And that question is asked because it doesn't seem to make sense to, to, to the English state because to them, English is the language of modernity and progress, etc. So how come a corner of our kingdom doesn't speak this language? And because industrialization creates very difficult um, living conditions, you know, working in coal industry or the iron industry was not a pleasant experience. Yes, the wages were better than living off the land, but the living conditions were very difficult as towns as towns grew up very fast, um, you know, full of disease, full of overcrowding, et cetera, et cetera. So Wales starts to develop a reputation for being unruly. Um, there are a series of kind of riots and protests. The army is sent in on several occasions and, and opens fire and kills people. And as the English government is saying, well, what are we going to do about this? Attention starts to focus on the Welsh language. Um, and the idea that maybe the problem is that the that the Welsh people don't speak the same language as the rest of us, and maybe we need to do something about that. And that turns people's attention to the question of education. Um, and MPs are saying, you know, it's cheaper to send some schoolmasters to, to Wales than to hold, um, you know, a unit of army there. Just before we come to education, because this is obviously such a massive thing, just on the, the Industrial Revolution and the coal and the steel and the huge development of the South Wales Valleys and so on. I mean, obviously, one thing that that does is it creates a great disparity between North and South Wales in a much more marked way than it existed before. But there are some historians, aren't there, who say, well, this is basically a purely extractive economy. So it, this really is a colonial economy. The English are doing to the Welsh what they're doing to so many people all around the world. They're just taking their resources and Wales is gaining nothing from this. Is that true? Well, I mean, it is literally an extractive economy because things have been dug out of the ground and sent to other places. It's a complicated one because there isn't a, there isn't a, a straightforward pattern. Some of the industrialists are English. Um, you know, some of the early ironmasters are English, but they settle in Wales. They become part of Welsh society. Um, you know, some of them learn Welsh. So, you know, it, it, it's a little bit misleading, I think, to call them English. In the coal industry, a lot of the big early developments are led by local entrepreneurs, um, you know, making money, um, looking for opportunities to make money. Yes, there are English coal owners, but the majority um, are, are Welsh. And of course, it's not always easy to distinguish between who is English and Welsh, because you have families with Welsh backgrounds living in England, you have English families who settle um, in, in Wales. 
where there is some extraction that's that, that's going on in many ways is in the mineral rights. So if you were the local landowner, you you were entitled to a share of the profits, essentially, when somebody dug things out of your ground. And a lot of the landowners, like people like the Marquises of Butte, were not local. Um, and right. money is leaving Wales to go to England via the mineral rights. Um, so industrialization creates immense wealth, but just as in England, that wealth is very concentrated in a handful of pockets. You know, in many ways, this is a story of class oppression rather than national oppression. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you about that. Wales is historically very much a, a labor voting country and presumably the roots of that lie in the Industrial Revolution and the, 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 the dilution of the sense that what is the, the principal differences between English and Welsh comes to be blurred and it comes to be between the, the industrial masses and those who are profiting from their labour. I mean, in the 19th century, Wales is a liberal country. You know, Wales is voting liberal. I mean, of course, it's not a full democracy in that period, but the Liberal Party see themselves as a symbol of Welshness. They promote the rights of nonconformity, um, and Wales was a chapel-going society, and that was a symbol of difference with England. The Liberal Party celebrate uh, Welsh culture, Welsh language, uh, Welsh history. You know, there is this middle-class liberal establishment who are very much pushing a Welsh agenda, celebrating Welsh nationhood. I mean, some historians talk about Wales being reborn at the late in the late 19th century. It rediscovers its history. It rediscovers its sense of identity. And that's part of, of course, the European movement. You know, across across Europe in the late 19th century, there are national movements and, and, and Wales is part of that. And Wales is presumably very, very well suited to that because it, there really is a properly ancient bardic tradition um and scope for dressing up as druids is very very rich yeah. and exciting i mean some of the traditions are invented um, yeah but, well but that's that's what yeah. romantic nationalism is all about isn't exactly it? but they're drawing upon something real welshness isn't invented um you mm. know the sense of history the sense of of difference to england is very profound because there was a real cultural difference um you know even at the end of the 19th century, you know, half the population of Wales speak a different language to England. Well, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's not that long ago. That's a massive thing, isn't it? The issue of the language and education. So, so here's the sort of standard version, I guess, that I had read before I read your book. And that I guess a lot of people in Wales will tell you, which is that in the middle of the 19th century, the 1840s, um, Westminster, the directive comes down, stamp out Welsh, Everybody should learn English. Um, Welsh is backward and primitive. And what the famous sort of embodiment of this is this thing that you have to wear around your neck at school called the Welsh knot. And if you're caught speaking Welsh, you put it on. And then the boy who's, or I guess girl, who's who's wearing it at the end of the day is punished in some way. And people are beaten for speaking Welsh. I mean, I can remember. So my grandfather was, was Welsh. He had emigrated from Wales, as so many people did. Uh, in the sort of early years or middle of the 20th century, he'd lost his accent. Um, he was still very proud to be Welsh. And he would, I remember him saying to me when I was little, you know, we were beaten at school for speaking in Welsh. And I always, I mean, I have to say, he was a great teller of tall stories, which obviously does not run in the family at all. So I had my doubts even then. But Martin, your book suggests that this is all a little bit exaggerated and oversimplified. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's complicated, the history. I mean, definitely in the middle of the 19th century, the British government was worried about Wales. Um, and there is a sense that it is a threat in some ways. And the language being the obvious sense of difference, that's where attention focuses. And yeah, commissioners are sent to Wales to, and they have, they have this big education inquiry that says, you know, Welsh is a backwards language. It's holding the Welsh back from joining civilization. And the sooner the language sort of disappears, the better Wales will be. But actually, not a lot actually happens after that in terms of policy, because you know the the, the early and the mid nineteenth century, the British state is very small. It, it's not actually doing an awful lot in terms of interfering in daily life in any sphere. There are limited grants available in the education, you know, in the field of education. But by and large, you know, this is lace, this is a period of kind of laissez-faire politics. The government is hands off, so it has no respect for the Welsh language. It certainly would be happier if the Welsh language died off. But it doesn't really do anything about that. But what does happen within Wales is that parents want their children to learn English because English is the language of modernity, of law, 
of power. One chapel minister in North Wales says, you know, people look around and they see that anybody with a job that doesn't break your back speaks English. People understood that English was the root out of misery and poverty. And that meant schools, not out of some diktat from Westminster, but because of local pressures are run through the medium of English. They're there to teach people English. The question is, how do you teach people who don't speak a language a new language? And some people thought the way to do that was to basically beat them if they spoke their domestic language. Um, and the Welsh not, this wooden board put around people at children's necks if they were heard to speak Welsh. You know, that, that was to almost create a sense of shame, an association between speaking Welsh and, and, and shame and being humiliated. Do the parents back this? The, the parents the parents do seem to back it. There doesn't seem to be any kind of outcry against it. Um, and certainly there is some evidence that, that those kinds of measures are introduced in some places at the request of parents. And most of the teachers um, in these areas are Welsh speakers. You know, they're, they're, they're local people from the community. This is something that the Welsh people are doing to themselves. The government isn't telling them to, but the government agrees with this right. the broad principle. The problem is it didn't work because what was literally happening in these schools was these kids don't hear English outside school because nobody's speaking it in the community. You know, in rural Wales, these are entirely Welsh-speaking places. So they're coming into school. They're being taught to read these words through literally somebody putting them up on a blackboard or being given a book and the teacher says the word and the children repeat after them. And they're learning how to say these words. They're learning how to kind of read. But because nobody is telling them what these words mean in their own language, they have no idea what they are reading. That's it's not Duolingo, is it? So in that case, what is it that leads to the decline of Welsh, which has been such a, a cause celebre in Wales in the 20th century? The key issue, I'd argue, is migration. So industrialization creates well-paid jobs. You know, they're harsh communities, overcrowded communities, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, they are better paid jobs than living in the land. So people start to move into industrial Wales from places like Shropshire, the southwest of England, and then further, further afield. And that brings the English language into working class communities for the first time in, in many ways. Now, initially, those early migrants learn Welsh because that's the dominant language of the community. But as their numbers grow, they stop learning Welsh. And increasingly, local people start learning English. And because they are starting to learn English at school, particularly yeah. after people start working out the Welsh knot doesn't work, we actually need to teach them English through the medium of Welsh. As schooling, as education policies get better, people are learning English at school and then they're using English in the community with these migrants. And as migration grows, the balance, the linguistic balance in industrial communities starts to tip. Yeah, you've got some amazing stats here. You've got, uh, so the Rhonda saw its population grow from under 1,000 in 1851 to more than 150,000 by 1911. And you talk about the, the growth of Cardiff, which had been a small market town and ends up one of the, I mean, not just one of the most kind of important industrial ports, but one of the most cosmopolitan. Yeah, I mean, in industry brings people from, you know, from all over the world. And Cardiff has, you know, in, in some ways, the, the oldest black community anywhere in the United Kingdom. It's very self-contained in the docks area of Cardiff, which are a little bit separated from the main city. It's often treated appallingly by the local authorities. There's considerable racism. Um, but industrialization does change the very structure of Welsh society. And one other thing that, um, as well as the English language arriving, there's an English game uh, which the Welsh adopt as their own. And I'm curious why, why this and how this happens. And that game is, of course, rugby, which is now absolutely identified with Wales. I mean... Wales are obviously at the Football World Cup, which is why we're doing this this story. But really, rugby has always been Wales's traditional game. Why? It's a sport of the English public schools. And some of the Welsh gentry, some of the Welsh middle classes are being sent to English public schools and are coming back with this game. But also because it was the sport of the English public schools, it had some social status. And, you know, when we think about why individuals decided to, to speak to their children in English rather than in Welsh... Um, it was because English had social status. And it's the same with, with, you know, with, with anything that's coming from England. There's some cachet to it. So people adopt rugby because of that. Um, the sport spreads very quickly, but it very quickly becomes a symbol of Welshness because you have these diverse communities in industrial areas where people have come from all over the place. 
rugby enabled them to unite under the kind of the banner of Welshness. It didn't matter if you were middle class or working class, whether you spoke English or Welsh, didn't matter what your family heritage were. A lot of the early Welsh rugby players are, are migrants from England, but they have moved to Wales, so they don the, um, the red shirt. And because rug Wales ends up with a very good rugby team in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, that adds an emotional element to it because you don't want your national symbols to be something that you're bad at. And because okay. Wales happens to have a really good team, it becomes incredibly attractive. So rugby becomes a really powerful symbol of Welshness, which is unifies people in a way that kind of language or politics doesn't. And I'd argue that through the 20th century, the fact that Wales had its own national teams in football and rugby is one of the key way, reasons why Welsh identity has stayed so powerful. Well, I wanted to ask about that because, I mean, there's so much we will have to skip over. So there's obviously a Welsh prime minister, a Welsh speaker in David Lloyd George. As you say, Wales has become economically transformed in the previous hundred years. And I suppose one thing that you might not have been able to predict at that point was the revival of Welsh nationalism. So Plaid Cymru, the Welsh Nationalist Party, is founded in 1925. Do you think the rise of Welsh nationalism was inevitable because it was, you know, it has 19th century roots. It happens all over Europe, nationalist parties and so on. Or do you think it is a distinctive story because obviously that economy in which Wales has built its new identity is doomed, actually. It's quite a short-lived moment, isn't it? The the industrial golden age, because as you say in your book, the, the interwar years are dreadful for Wales. And then after that, it's kind of yeah. downhill for coal and steel and all these things. Something must be done. The future Edward VIII, isn't it? Visiting yeah. the um, the depressed areas. So is nationalism a reaction to that? Or is it more just an inevitable, like Irish nationalism, a product of that sort of swirl of 19th century ideas? The, the important thing to remember about kind of Welsh nationalism in the early 20th century is that it's not political, it's cultural. Um, the goal is not necessarily an independent Wales. The goal is protecting the Welsh language. Um, and because the Welsh language was so clearly in decline by the 1920s and the 1930s, um, partly because of these, these demographic changes we've already talked about, but also in the 20s and 30s, there's a mass migration from Wales because of the, of the depression. And by the 20s and 30s, people are starting to think the Welsh language might actually die out in the next century. And it, unless we act nothing is going to, you know, that's actually going to happen. So, the, you know, the initial kind of birth of Plaid Cymru and the first couple of decades of Welsh nationalism, it's not about politics. It's not about trying to rebuild the Welsh economy. It's about trying to protect the language. And indeed, in the early period of Plaid Cymru, there's actually an antipathy towards industry. And there's some people saying, actually, the future for Wales should be if we go backwards and we become another a rural agricultural society again, because that's when Welsh was at its strongest. It's only in the post-1945 period does Welsh nationalism start to develop this political edge and people start to really kind of debate what is our relationship with Westminster? Should we have our own parliament? Should we ha be an independent nation? And so what is the state of play now with, in, in terms of that, in terms of Wales, Wales's sense of itself in relation to England and in relation to the idea of Britain? So well, Wales has retained a very strong sense of itself. Despite the paranoia in some ways um, you know, of the early 20th century, Welshness did survive. The, the Welsh language was weakened, but Welshness itself survived because it wasn't just based upon the language. And as I said, sport is one of the reasons why I think that happened. So Welshness has continued um, to live on. But the question is, what does it mean? Should it have a political role? And increasingly in the second half of the 20th century, as successive governments in Westminster failed to deal with the economic problems of Wales, Increasing numbers of people started to say the only way to rebuild our economy is to take matters into our own hands. It's a minority um, throughout the period, and even today, opinion polls suggest you know maybe only a quarter of the population support Welsh independence. But it is growing. Um, a part of the story there is Brexit, because the United Kingdom that people used to have an emotional connection to doesn't exist in many ways. Though Wales, a majority in Wales, voted for Brexit, they did. But not necessarily because they wanted to break away from the European Union, but because it was sticking two fingers up at the establishment. 
an establishment that had let them down. And I, I, I think it was really a vote against the establishment rather than a vote for you know the nuances of, of Brexit. But what Brexit also showed was that major constitutional change can happen. You know, 10 years ago, people were saying, you know, Welsh independence is a pipe dream. You know, it's not much more than 10 years ago that people were saying the idea that, that Britain would leave the EU. You know, that would have seen fantastical politics. Rapid change can happen. Major constitutional change can happen. So for those people on the left, Brexit has meant, I don't like the UK anymore. For those people on the right, it's, Brexit has shown, actually, maybe we could become independent. And a lot of the arguments over Brexit, about sovereignty, about looking after yourself, about rebuilding the economy from the bottom up, you know, those are the same ideas that can be applied to kind of to Welsh independence, to Scottish independence. And I know um, historians, I know from personal experience, historians are terrible, terrible predictors of the future. But if you were a betting man, do you think in our lifetime or our kind of children's lifetime, there will be an independent Welsh state? Or do you think the union with England is too deep-seated to undo? I think federalism um, of some form is inevitable. Um, I, I don't think the United Kingdom can support, survive in its common in its current form. Um, but the United Kingdom, like Wales, has proved remarkably resilient. Um, and if it is able to change and to adapt to... The, the demands for recognition and equality in, in Wales and Scotland, then you know that may well happen. Ultimately, what happens to Wales will depend on what happens in Scotland. We're doing this because of the England are playing Wales today, and you know, there's all kinds of of nationalist tub thumping around the game. But at the same time, as with rugby, so with football, English and Welsh players know each other incredibly well. The relationship between clubs and the national teams very very strong and so in that sense i guess this match does hold up quite a good mirror to the the complexities and the ambivalences of the relationships between england and wales because it's not all just about hostility and uh nationalist anthems and so on uh, absolutely and you know we we need to take a lot of things with a pinch of salt you know when, when people sing you know sort of patriotic songs that doesn't mean they hate their neighbors yeah. You know, a lot of this is kind of pantomime yeah. in, in many ways. You know, sport, sport football in particular is, yeah. is very much like that. You know, the, the economies of, of Wales and England are very closely related. Most people in Wales have family probably um, in England. Our societies are very closely related. And that means that, you know, it is an inevitable that the two countries will, will drift apart. And even if they do, even if there is um, Welsh independence, Scottish independence, you know, the United Kingdom will retain a cultural you know, and, and a social function. You know, we're, we're a very small island and we're all too closely related, but, you know, to completely break away from each other. That's a nice conclusion. Now, we didn't, one thing we didn't talk about, which I would like to quickly advertise to the listeners, Martin did a brilliant program on Radio 4 a couple of years ago. Uh, it was about the investiture of Prince Charles as Prince of Wales, wasn't it? That was the peg. But it also had this amazing story of this place called Truerin, where there was a, a little village that was flooded to make way for a reservoir to serve the people of Liverpool, which was a huge boost to... Um, the colonialists of Liverpool. Yeah, the colonialists of Liverpool, exactly. That's not a phrase you often hear. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, that was a lovely programme. And for people who... Are, it was, I imagine you might be able to find it on Radio 4. It was actually really quite moving, Martin, I thought. Is that, am I being too uh, purple about your programme? It was, no. There was lovely music and very haunting. <laughs> and it wasn't like the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really powerful story um, because here was a small, entirely Welsh-speaking community that were moved from their homes to build a reservoir for England. You know, this was about the loss of Welsh landscape. This was about the loss of the Welsh community. But it was also about the relationship between Wales and England because most, not all, but most of the Welsh MPs voted against it. But it went through Parliament because there are more English MPs than Welsh MPs. Um, and now it's become like this badge in Welsh culture. And there's graffiti across Wales that says, Cofiwch Trwerin, remember Trwerin. Um, and you're being asked to remember the loss of language, but also the inequality between Wales and England. You know, some people describe the relationship as being like in bed with an elephant. You know, <laughs> whether it's trying to crush you or not isn't the point. Inevitably, at some point, it will roll over um, and squash you. Yeah. Well, let's hope that doesn't happen today, eh, Tom? <laughs> well, 
I reserve judgment on that. I actually feel very conflicted about the England-Wales match because I am a quarter Welsh and um, I always like to root for the underdog. I don't at all. Don't you? You want England to absolutely hammer the Welsh. It's funny, actually, because I sometimes meet... So the guy who used to run the books pages at the Sunday Times, he was a big rugby fan and an incredibly mild-mannered, sort of tolerant, nice person. And he absolutely loathed the Welsh rugby team. <laughs> absolutely loathed them. And he, Andrew think, Holgate. Yeah, I think it's because he grew up in the Did 70s. He? And um, he just said, you know, they used to rub our faces in it year on year. So so there you go, Martin. That's a very bleak note on which to end. No, I think we should just re- re-emphasize that it is, on the footballing level, so much pantomime. It is pantomime, yeah. Basically. And, and, and essentially, they're all friends. So being proud of your country doesn't mean you have to hate anyone else's. Oh, what a and nice on that note, note. What a lovely on that note. Bombshell. <laughs> Thank you so much, Martin. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, may the best team win. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Pod.com.